Okay, um, it's quite warm in here, so uh, there's a water cooler here with uh, water in it, hopefully. Uh, if anybody wants to grab a cup, and there's also some bottled water up there, and Lindsay's just opened the windows, so hopefully that'll cool it down a bit. Um, famous last ones. Um, okay, you've all got the message already, of course, that getting published is an important part of uh, your lives at uh, this particular stage in uh, your career. Uh, so this strand of the, the workshop is called Getting Published. Uh, and we're going to hear, first of all, from uh, Professor Bill Luckin, who's a widely published historian uh, based at the University of Bolton. Uh, he tells me he's got two books in the pipeline, not just one, but he's got two books in the pipeline. Uh, the first is entitled Death and Survival in Urban Britain, 1800 to 1950. Uh, and the second is on drink driving in Britain uh, from 1800 to the beginning of this century. Uh, and Bill assures me features lots of horses, uh, presumably, presumably not in a very good way. Um, but his focus today is on journal publication, uh, something he's well placed to talk about. Uh, having published articles in, I've just taken a random selection really, uh, leading journals such as Social History, 20th Century British History, and Contemporary British History. So it's all the journals I like that I've picked oh, out. Okay. So you take it away, Bill. Well, thank you very much. Um, I did actually give this talk uh, a little while ago to a group in Scotland. Which of the universities would it have been? Anyhow. Uh, I had some notes, um, and I'm going to give a completely different talk today because it struck me that I was trying to get in too much uh, in the time. So I'm going to actually make ten points, and um, that gives me two minutes per point. It may, be too <laughs> it may be rather too much. I think that every historian, first point, should write pretty much every day of his or her life. I have one little tip there, and that is when you come out of an archive, find a nice quiet spot, usually for me, a pub somewhere, uh, and a piece of paper and a barrow, and just out of nothing, as it were, summarise what you've done that day. Uh, in terms of, sometimes of course nothing seems to make any sense at all in an archive, but if, if you can remote, remotely make any sense, do some writing. Uh, one of the things about writing is that it is a habit, and the more you do it, the better you'll get at it. Uh, the sub-points there are use short sentences. This is going to help you when you, you come on to publishing journals. Uh, use short words, and I've got down here in my notes, avoid repeating boring words. <laughs> There are th th there's a kind of litany of very boring words which readers, reviewers and editors, I think, detest. Issue, difficulty and problem. And in fact, there was once an uh, article submitted first time round to social, social History of Medicine which contained the word problem four times in the first six sentences. <coughs> Go for synonyms. Synonyms are vital. I guess what I'm trying to do under this first point is say that the better written an article is, it is still the case, despite what in my view has been a deterioration in the quality of article writing over the years, it is still more likely 
to get published than a very boringly written, prosaic and pedestrian article. That is part one. Point one. Point two is in that process of evaluating at whatever level you do it, what you have done during a day's research in the uh, archives, you are actually, without realizing it, thinking in structures. That is to say, if you were to try to summarize what you'd done in that day, it would take a particular form which you would be not forcing on it, but which, if you read it a couple of days later, would bring out a pattern that you hadn't noticed. And it strikes me, secondly, that the structure of an article, and the structure of an article is fairly homogenous right across the board in the humanities and the social sciences. I'm, I'm just going to be very functional. I don't like it. That's the way the world is, I'm afraid. <laughs> Uh, usually falls into three or four bits. So from the very beginning, what I'm suggesting to you, I think, is that when you do historical research, you are already writing an article. You are already writing an article. Uh, I'm speaking partly autobiographically because, because I'm a compulsive writer and have written all sorts of things for many many, many years, starting off as a journalist, I had to be a compulsive writer in order to uh, fulfill my contract when I, before I became a historian. I think it is very, very important then, firstly, to write the whole time, however little each day you write, and very, very few people do this, and secondly, to think the whole time about connections and structure. That's point two. Point three is, and this is particularly relevant for people who have recently completed a thesis and who want to publish an article. Don't get carried away with detail. Most PhDs are not publishable. I've, I probably only know two or three people, rather, I suppose, rather brilliant people, who have quite literally taken their PhD and published it. That's three people in about 45 years. It's, it's, it's a cutting down of detail that will be required. Say you've written six chapters and you want to publish an article, Decide which of those chapters you think is the one that is going to perhaps fit most meaningfully into a current debate. I'm, I'm taking it as given that you are extremely well versed in your secondary reading in uh, medical techniques in early Mesopotamia, for example. I'm taking it as given that all of you, by the time you reach that stage, are very deeply immersed in current debates, yes, and you're also very, very deeply immersed in the literature. Because the primary reason why 
articles are rejected first time round or rejected full stop is that they don't start off with a big question that is in the current literature and that is exercising people possibly all over the world. So if you come in with an incredibly highly detailed empirical study of asbestos poisoning in Nottingham in 1910, you've got to find something to hang it on to. 1910, 1911. So by the very nature, PhDs are too general. Degeneralize, make them specific. Sorry, they are too focused on specific points. What you need to do... <laughs> is to get them the other way, to put it the other way around, is to get them focused onto a current debate. So the first, first one is writing, structure, two things being connected. I've said a word or two about style, and in particular about very boring words. Uh, don't engage in circumlocution. You're never going to fool anybody by writing in a style that attempts to demonstrate that you know more than you do know or that is trying to make a theoretical point that could be made much more simply. And uh, following um, a certain period of time, the 1990s, I would say in particular, we've gone back to, I think, a style of writing in journals that is much simpler. And th key theoretical issues can be elucidated in monosyllables. It just means you've got to work very hard. Four. Well, this is uh, a point that I've already made. It's to do with framing. That is to say, when you present your material, chapter five, for example, of your dissertation, you want to start off with some big issues that have uh, generated large-scale historical debate in that area. Succinctly summarize, but critically, the key word I think there is critically, succinctly and critically summarize the mainstream of that strand of argument. And then say what it is perhaps you don't like about it, you disagree with, or that you want to amplify. And then start your article. But start your article with a roadmap. Many articles are turned down because a reviewer says, quite justifiably I think, this is an excellent piece of empirical work, but after the introduction, I didn't know where I was going. My own working principle has always been to, to treat readers as being rather dumb. <laughs> in the sense that everybody is thinking about something else. How often do we get the 100% attention that I'm sure we all think our work deserves. So don't, don't worry about oversimplifying. So long as the reader, the reviewer, the editor, the literary assistant is, knows exactly what's going to happen at the very beginning, you're on much firmer ground. 
the next thing is not actually related to writing. It's actually related to the build-up to writing. You should try and give papers, as many papers as you can, to as many different audiences as, as you can. Somebody's waving at me over there. Um, <laughs> from the very beginning of your doctoral career. And certainly, <laughs> certainly your postdoctoral career. Now this is, um, this is uh, a quite terrifying prospect in many respects. Uh, I think, I don't know whether other people here would agree that the Americans and the American system prepares people to give papers at that period much better than the, than the British one does, although I think, I think we're probably catching up. Uh, you, you, you should be trying, you should be using the internet, you should be looking, use the uh, SSHM site to find out what conferences are coming up. So many conferences are coming up virtually every day of the week. Uh, advertise for the future, send in an abstract, because an abstract is something that you're going to have to do. And in fact, uh, among the many problems of being an editor, uh, one of the worst uh, things that you have to deal with is dealing with people's outlines and abstracts. And in fact, I'll, I'll make a personal confession. I wrote something for 20th century British history. They said all the problems are out of the way. Everything is fine now. And I had, I was going to use that Canadian expression uh, about arses and something else. But I won't because I'll probably get it wrong. Um, <laughs> Everything is fine except that, and I, I, this is engraved on my memory, except that your abstract bears no relation whatsoever <laughs> to the article in its finished, now finally finished form. And I'm sure everybody here would agree who's published a, a moderate amount, would agree that abstract writing is fiendishly bloody difficult, isn't it? Mm. Uh, particularly from the point of view of... Uh, repetition of words, of boring words in particular, and particularly you suddenly are reading an article and you realise somebody has simply lifted out five, six, seven lines, put them at the top. That won't do. That won't do, I'm afraid. People spot that very quickly. Point six. If you need to start again, start again. If you need to start again, start again. Don't hang on for dear life to the wreckage. A, a good friend of mine, I, I'll, I'll mention his name because several people here know him, Roger Cooter. Uh, I went around to discuss a paper we were writing together and I went, went into his front room and I, he said, what do you think? And I said, uh, I, said I think uh, possibly this bit's wrong and that bit's wrong, and I think that's theoretically over-contorted, and I think you've over-complicated that, etc. He said, OK, I'll start again. He got up and he walked over and he picked it up and he tore it in half and started again. Well, that's taking it to an extreme, but I'm sure you get the message. If you find... There's no way of judging the precise period of time that you should labour trying to make it good particularly in terms of structure, but when you suddenly realise that you've reached a brick wall with the theoretical and empirical continuity of the article, check it out with a few friends, 
if there's a kind of consensus, then start again. But don't chuck all the data out, you know. <laughs> that would be unwise. <laughs> Choose the right journal. You'd be amazed at how many authors, and particularly young authors, choose the wrong journal. And it doesn't even get sent out. It's simply sent back. And you actually usually, if you're not over, you know, if you've got time enough to do it, you usually make a list of the journals that the person in question might send it to. So survey the field. I mean, this, what, what, what does this imply? This strongly implies, does it not, that you are actually reading a lot of journals anyhow. You know what the key journals in your field are. My own view about young writers is they should aim as high as they can, as early as they can, but in the right area. That would be the advice I think I would give. <coughs> How much longer have I got, John? Five minutes. Five minutes, good God. Point eight, submit in style perfect form. I'm going to repeat that. Submit in style, perfect form. Don't send in a piece of work that you know when it comes up on screen is simply going to make an editor or an assistant editor simply groan. And it takes a long time to get an article in-house style. But don't spoil your chances. Don't spoil your chances by submitting uh, something that bears no relation to house style. We have no time. I, I speak in, in, in the present, but I, ha I haven't edited now for some time. But editors have no time whatsoever these days with the bombardment of articles that they receive with frightening continuity every day of the week to fiddle around with that kind of editing. It might make stylistic suggestions. And the, the, the little extra point there is never send in an article that is over length. Don't send in an article that is 12,000 words long when it says very clearly online 8,500 including notes and bibliography. Don't do it. These things get around, you know. So somebody else. And it might, you might be get, get known as somebody who overwrites. Uh, actually, I've only got nine points. This is the <laughs> final point. <laughs> this, is, this is the final point. The final point is have lots of friends, but in an academic sense, have lots of friends, or as many as you can, who are critical friends. I mean, I did think, this is my final comment, I think, what I did think about doing was dragging out some of the comments that good friends of mine who are also critical have made of an early draft of an article I have written. And I thought that would be a rather good way of structuring this uh, brief talk. But um, 
I'm sure already all of you have got little networks. When you've written something, you say, what do you think of this? Where, you know, do you think this is doing the job? And, and make the most of that. In addition to which, and I think several people have hinted at this earlier in their talks, which I found incredibly instructive. It's like being dragged into the present from some deep, dark place for me. But um, to, to, to hear what, what the other speakers have said, it's been remarkably revealing and helpful to you also as well. Um, try to make contacts through seminars and through conferences and through the SSHM, and the marvellous conference that goes on every year, uh, organised by the SSHM. Start to gradually make contact. I think somebody said, don't be over-pushy. So, again, at the risk of alienating a few Americans who may be in your... At, at, at American conferences, some people have grabbed me. Well, they haven't actually entirely grabbed me. <laughs> but they have, they have said, oh, I've heard, I've heard your name. Do you think you should spare me 10 minutes? And then I've had a real spiel, you know. Maybe. Maybe that works. Maybe you have to do it in America with 800, <laughs> 800 people at a conference. In general, though, try to make it slightly more subtle than that. <laughs> I think that's all I've got to say. <laughs> <laughs>
is you wrote a thesis. You didn't write a book necessarily. A thesis has a structure, it has requirements, it has an approach, and this isn't necessarily always found in books. Just think of the literature reviews that you're writing for your introductions. They can be very long, very involved. We don't tend to find those in monographs. But you can, at taking the advice from my PhD supervisor, always have the idea that your thesis might be turned into a book and think about what that might be at the outset. Now, you can ask yourself a number of very simple questions. Is there a book in my thesis? Does thinking about writing the book give me an opportunity to reflect and write something much better? Sometimes, I've heard this, some examiners say, if you could do it again, your whole thesis again, what would you do different? And actually thinking about turning your thesis into a book does allow you to, to do that. Notice there's a few people who published extensively in the room who are nodding. Is your thesis a narrow case study or actually a contribution? Now, most publishers prefer contributions. They don't necessarily like narrow case studies because they have to think of markets. They have to think about what sells. And then the other questions, how much have you published from your thesis? If you've already published nine articles and it's only nine chapters long, then really probably you shouldn't bother. Um, other questions to ask, can you actually do it? Can you turn your thesis into the book? To quote an esteemed historian now retired, he always thought revisiting his work was like re-eating his own vomit. Now, that might be something to bear in mind when regurgitating your thesis into a book. Can you actually face it? Can you make the book a decent contribution? How much additional research are you going to need to do or not do? And you have to ask that question. Do, should I do more? Yes. We can all do more research, but knowing when to stop is, is, is important, as I'm sure your PhD supervisors will be telling you. How much writing or rewriting is needed? So echoing Bill's point. And as I said, not all doctoral thesis should be turned into a book. So actually, is it better to publish a series of articles? And finally, what publisher? What series should I approach? Different series, different publishers have strengths in different areas. Different publishers have different series where your book might be better placed. Now, very good publishers, not mentioning Picard and Chateau, of course, uh, who do do this and are an excellent publisher, they swap books around between their series. So you might submit to one series and they might go, actually, it doesn't really fit here, so we'll move it into another one where it will be better placed. But doing a little bit of homework at the start can help. So you have to remember, your thesis is something people have to read. Your supervisor, your examiners. A book is something that people want to read. And you have to make them want to read it. And this means often revising, reworking, and sometimes perhaps rethinking your PhD. And remembering that making changes takes work and takes time. As Bill said, there are very few people who just go, do you know what? That's excellent. I'll just send it off to the publisher and the publisher publishes it straight off, particularly now 
in the time where publishers, their margins are getting very, very squeezed. They're thinking about open access. They're thinking about eBooks. Libraries are moving on to read on demand. They have to be very clear that there is a market and a readership for it. And often that takes thought, work and time. So we've just been appointing new ECRs in my institution. So I went around and talked to them and they said standard is one to three years to turn the thesis into a book. Sometimes it takes longer um, and for seeking jobs you will always need a clear plan on the length of time. So there are certain things you do and do not do. So do not ever submit your thesis without changes unless you can handle rejection letters really quite easily. Do not assume that your book will be the definitive study that every single person will read. Hopefully it will be, but don't make that assumption at the outside. Don't wait too long. You'll be surprised how quickly scholarship moves on. Publishers are increasingly speeding up the process of publication. Uh, as a colleague found out, he submitted a book. Ten days later, he got the, he got the um, copy editing comments back. A month later, he got his proof back. So it can be an extremely quick process, so don't wait too long. Don't adopt a narrow focus. Don't spend endless pages on some tiny, tiresome, slightly tedious detail, which only, i say 100, maybe only five people in your sub-sub-sub-sub-field might be interested in. As Bill said, sometimes taking out the detail can be important. Please don't include lots of illustrations and pictures. Publishers will only go back and say, how much money have you got um, to publish your book? They'll be asking you for a subvention. Publishers have not got the cash to do that. So if you are going to include illustrations, you are going to include pictures and tables, think about what purpose they serve. And don't do what some people just go, oh, I fancy a picture, I'll stick it in because that's nice. The Welcome are brilliant. They have a fantastic picture library. You can get access to lots of illustrations, but really think about how you're using them. Do not ever think you can get away with exceeding 110,000 words. Actually, really, your monograph should be 90,000 words when you submit, largely because you'll always probably be asked to do a bit more. After 110,000 words, publishers start getting panicky. It costs money. They don't like it. And do not ever submit to multiple publishers. We gossip, we talk, reviewers talk. You send them a book and they go, that's very interesting. I'm already reviewing this book or this proposal for another publisher. And it tends to get bounced back. And in some cases, you find that no publisher wants to, to touch you. So go through, do your background. So do allow time. Do make changes. So build, do build on the advice of your examiners. Do make sure that your thesis as a book is actually coherent. It's an organic whole now. Do think about the big questions you're addressing and think in particular about the introductions to each chapter. You don't need those very lengthy engagements with historiography. Remove unnecessary footnotes and actually think about your writing style and, the, and spend time writing, rewriting, thinking about your communication. Think about your audiences. Revise crucially the introduction. The introduction to your book will be very different. And think about the title. Um, 
One of the things publishers like doing is mucking around with your beautiful titles uh, because they go, it goes on a catalogue and people want to see what it's about, so they want nice, simple titles. You can be playful. Ali Haggard's Desperate Housewives is selling really, really well. It is a fantastic book, getting lots of uh, very, very positive reviews. It's also got a really good, snappy title. So think about your title. Now, when you've done all of this, you'll be expected to seek a publisher. And the publisher will want you to submit a proposal. So actually do what the publisher is asking you to do. They, on their websites, have information which says, we want this in a proposal. So make sure you demonstrate the need for your book. Show it, don't just tell it. What's your unique selling point? Why would your book make a contribution? What are the key themes and questions? What method and approach have you used? Is this new sources, new areas, new approaches, new ways of thinking? Think about your structure. Actually think about writing a narrative of your structure and how it fits together. And do it in a brief way so that the editor, publisher, reviewer can look at it and go, I understand what this book is trying to do. Outline the chapters and their contributions and do it to make them sound interesting. Think about your markets. All publishers says, who's going to buy this book? Historians. Okay, be a bit more precise. What other, what other fields? Is this going to appeal to undergraduate courses, postgraduate courses? Might this have a wider readership? Think about the competition. Think about the practicalities. Obviously, I've said, avoid, the, avoid writing over 110,000 words, but actually give your publisher a clear indication of what you're doing. And include your CV, because CVs help demonstrate who you are, your track record. Now, when you come to submitting, doing all this, you submit your detailed proposal, you submit your sample revised chapters. Uh, if you find that you're submitting stuff which has this thesis, Will, you'll just find that the editor of the series or the publisher will just send it back and go, try again, um, then do it again, and you haven't taken it out, and they'll send it back and say, go again. So give sample chapters. They give you, the more you give, normally about two to three, gives your reviewer something to work with, to see the quality of your work. Think about, I would say, sending the revised introduction, because that actually will help, because it can go beyond the um, proposal by talking about your method, your approach, how it fits in and extends the historiography. Your CV, as I said, demonstrates your track record, and then be patient. Academics can be busy. They are sometimes forgetful. No, they're always forgetful. They sometimes need gentle reminding. We like proposals and chapters to be reviewed within six to eight weeks. I am seldom surprised that it can take three months for someone to, to remember. So be patient. Just because you haven't heard, it's not a disaster yet. Um, <laughs> it might be, but it's not necessarily so. And after three months, do happily remind the editor or publisher where you are, because it might be that you know, they're having trouble, the, the person they've approached to review it, something has happened, and they're seeking other reviewers. Now, your reviewers, the readers, will always comment on, sorry, the originality, the contribution, your conceptual and methodological approach, how the book fits with a wider historiography, the structure, what might be missing, what could be included. Its appeal, its audience, 
Is it readable? Has it got a nice writing style? And the calibre of the author? So when writing your proposal, when submitting your chapters, think about what the reviewers are being asked to look for and make sure you tick all of those boxes. It's like submitting grant applications. Hilary and Dan have already said, you know, some bodies like engagement, some don't. If they don't like engagement, don't include it. If they do like engagement, do include it. So when you write your proposal, think of all these boxes that you're going through and nicely ticking. Now, when you respond to the reviewers, take the hints from the editor. Your editor of the series, publisher will say, these are the important things you need to address. Try and address all the points raised by the reviewer or the editor. Show what you can do and how you'll do it, and also what you can't do, what's not feasible. You have to remember, it is your book, that sometimes readers and reviewers are telling you what they wanted you to write, rather than what you did write. So it is about negotiation, it is about a dialogue. I have often found in dealing with, with authors that often, you know, a reviewer may have made six points and they say, well, actually, I can do four, but I can't do these two. That's fine. You're showing a willingness to engage and develop. You might save up the ideas for the next one. But do bear in mind that the reviewer and reader will probably see the manuscript again, so it, it bears taking notice of them. Then, to your final manuscript, Make the changes and allow time for this. We've heard about the pressures on, on academic life, the teaching, the administration, the need to carry on research. So actually give a realistic amount of time for how long it's going to take and then stick to those deadlines. Publishers really like deadlines. Editors really like deadlines. You miss the deadline, your book won't come out. Maybe for another year. They have very tight publication schedules. Many writers, John, was excellent, met his deadline perfectly. Um, many academics miss deadlines, and you go, well, I know you wanted this book to come out in 2015, but you missed the deadline, so it's going to come out in 2016. Or, terribly, in a ref context, oh dear, it's coming out in 2021 and not in time for 2020. So stick to your deadlines. Very briefly about the series. I am a series editor for Pickering and Chateau's Social History and Medicine series. We cover all aspects of health, illness and medicine, from antiquity to the present. We have a very wide range of the works we're looking for. We actively support early career researchers. We like getting the book from the PhD. We also support established academics very senior academics, important academic, academics at all stages of the career. So we are very open to you submitting. Um, we also tend to turn around books quite quickly. Pickering and Chateau prides itself on its quality and also its ability because it does everything in-house. Most of the time it can take your manuscript to book in, in between three and four months, which is quite incredible. Now, there are some various resources that you can look at. Um, and Janet, this is, is this going to be made, PowerPoint's going to be made available? Yeah, so there you go. This will, so on the, uh, when you be able to download it, there are various resources. Laura Otis' dissertation to book is very good. Um, if you want to freak yourself out, use the writer's diet test to see how good or how difficult your writing is to comprehend. I do it every so often and then I panic. And then look at various style writing guides about how to submit a proposal. And if you're interested, I'm around at the conference all the time. I'm 
Kia, my contact details. David Cantor is always also going to be around at the conference who takes uh, looks after um, edited collection. So thank you very much, and I look forward to chatting with you more over tea, coffee, wine. <laughs>